0: Thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. This holiday, give Harry's and give Handsome. Get your holiday shopping done early and take advantage of free shipping. To get a limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last, go to harrys.com slash fool right now. It's Tuesday, December 12th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Supernova, David Kretzmann. How are you? I'm doing well. It's a good Tuesday. How are you? <laughs> it is a good Tuesday. <laughs> Uh, for a reason, why are they laughing, you may ask as you're listening to this? Well, it's something that happened right before we started taping. And we're just going to keep that to ourselves because that's just kind of the mood I'm in. Um, we're going to talk upgrades. We're going to talk publishing because the Google Facebook war continues. We're going to start, though, in the automotive business. And this is something that we talked about, David, on Motley Fool Money last week. Um, and last week it was Anheuser Busch InBev buying 40 semi-trucks from Tesla. Today, the news comes out that Pepsi, which does a fair amount of shipping on their own, they're buying 100 trucks from Tesla. I guess that's good for Tesla because I'm assuming they're getting that money up front.
1: Yeah, they they initially had set the pre-order price for these semi trucks at five thousand dollars, and that has since gone up to twenty thousand dollars. So they're bringing in you know some some decent money. Reuters says that uh, Tesla has two hundred and sixty-seven confirmed public re- reservations to date. So you know that's a couple million bucks that Tesla has now that they didn't have a month ago. So. I mean, give Tesla credit. They, they, and especially Elon Musk, they're great at building up anticipation, building up excitement around future product launches. And I think the the ultimate question here continues to be: Can they get to the point where they execute and deliver on those expectations relatively on time? And at this point, I, I think there's still a lot of question marks there. Obviously, they're going through some issues scaling production of the Model Three, their mass market vehicle. And then adding on anticipation for the semi truck, the Roadster two. On top of that, coming in the next couple of years, uh, it adds to the question marks because at some point they they need to not only promise, they need to also deliver, and uh, they they still have some work to do there.
0: So there are a couple of interesting things here to me, and one you mentioned that initially Tesla was looking for five thousand dollars upfront to reserve these trucks and then they bumped that up to 20,000. Yeah, why not? And uh, you know what? Good for them because if they if they feel like they have that kind of pricing power and Pepsi is going to cut that kind of check, well then again, good for them. But and this is something Tim Hansen and I talked about last week when you think about how Tesla has done in terms of delivering vehicles to people who have ordered them. Let's put the trucks aside for a second, but just individual people. People are excited to get their Model 3, and they're willing to wait for however many months. And Sometimes it's more than a few months. We've seen stories of secondary markets popping up on Craigslist, where people are selling their $1,000 deposit. Essentially, they're selling their place in line to people who are further back in the line, and they're selling that $1,000 reservation for Three and $4,000.
1: I'm so disappointed I didn't do that. Because <laughs> a year ago, I had reserved a Model 3 because it's like, okay, I'm not at a point right now in my life where I needed a car. But hey, in a couple years, if I'm at a point where I need a car and I can afford it, Model 3 would be a pretty cool initial car. But then this spring, I was just thinking, okay, there's no way I need... A car, let alone a thirty-five or forty thousand dollar car, to be my first vehicle here in the DC area. So I, I went through the process of canceling the reservation, and it took a few months. And Tesla was not very responsive, so I went after him on Twitter. I sent him some some different emails, and I finally got the reservation check. And probably a month month or two after that, that was in July when I finally got my reservation t- check refunded. Uh, that, that's when I saw the stories of people, like you just mentioned, selling their their place in line essentially for. Three or four thousand dollars. I'm like, why did I not think of that? But you know, left a couple thousand dollars on the table. Apparently,
0: so consider your own personal experience where you're a young person and you think, well, I don't need this right now, but at some point in the future, this might be nice to have. Which brings us back to the trucks. AB InBev, Pepsi, they need these trucks. They're not going to wait around. So, unlike what we've seen anecdotally with people like you and and other individuals with their cars. In some ways, am I wrong in thinking that these deadlines are more important to Tesla's reputation than the deadlines for individual car owners? I think there's something
1: to that. Uh, The the orders that are coming in from Walmart, Cisco, PepsiCo, and some of these other companies, Anheuser-Busch, they tend to be a a small fraction of the the vehicles that those companies have on the road. Uh, I, I think I saw that PepsiCo, they have at least several thousand Uh, Semi-trucks. On the road in, in North America, so this is really more. I'd, I'd say they put it more in like the test run category. Like we'll give this a shot. A lot of these companies are trying to reduce their emissions by 2020 or 2030, and certainly if uh, you know an all-electric semi truck is feasible and also saves money in a lot of other ways, you don't have to spend that much money on on diesel. Obviously, better uh, fuel emissions and a lower carbon footprint. Then I think you would see those orders uh, kick up over time. So I think. Most important is obviously just getting the product right, delivering on those expectations. So if you do have a several month delay, that's probably not the end of the world, since this is such a new, you know, leap forward as far as technology goes, especially with semi trucks. But uh, they do need to get it right, so I think that that's most important. So if you do need to delay it a few months to get it right, probably worthwhile. But if you're delaying a year or two. It it leaves room for competing solutions to come in. And I think, yeah, it certainly damages Tesla's reputation, which already at this point, I think people (laughs) just sort of assume okay, any target launch date that they have for a product, probably uh, knock it back a few
0: months. That's more realistic. Let's move on to Stitch Fix, which got an upgrade this morning from RBC Capital. Uh, You know what? Technically not an upgrade. I think RBC just initiated coverage and. Slapped an outperform label on Stitch Fix. Uh, Stitch Fix is an online personalized clothing company. Uh, One of those sort of you you have a stylist who's assigned to you that sort of thing. I've not used it. Uh, Our colleague Christine Harges. uh, When I was in the mailroom yesterday, I noticed uh, there was a Stitch Fix box there for her, so I, I, I chatted with her this morning about it, and she seems pretty pretty pleased with it as a consumer, as a business. This is a company that's been public for about an hour and a half. Yeah, <laughs> so they're, they're young. This is a young public company. But uh, unlike some other companies that have gone public in 2017 and have suffered right out of the gate, this is a stock that's up 60% since they went public uh, in late November. When you look at this company, what do
1: you see? What's interesting about the IPO is that they they actually lowered the the price for the IPO, and now that the stock is up, like you said, sixty percent or so, the company is valued, I think, around two point two billion dollars. Now, they they probably left some money on the table because they went into the IPO roadshow where they're talking to the investment banks and essentially pitching the company. For whatever reason, they felt they had to lower the share price to really entice those institutional investors. But uh, they they probably could have stuck with their initial range, but. It, this is an impressive company, and I mean they started in 2011, founded by Katrina Lake, who still owns 15 percent of uh, the company even after the IPO. Uh, she's still CEO, but through 2011 to today, before the initial public offering, they had only they only raised less than 50 million dollars from venture capital investors, which is impressive. So they were really able to grow to almost a billion-dollar revenue business through their own cash flow. So That that, that that is impressive. Yeah, you you don't really hear about that much coming out of Silicon Valley or really with many young companies today, especially with that uh, rate of growth. So, they've managed to build a, a nice, sustainable business without having to rely on outside capital or debt. Because Even going into the IPO, they had $110 million in cash and no debt, so they weren't really going public just to raise. (laughs) <laughs> uh, to raise cash. They, they they didn't really have a shortage of cash. So, it will be interesting to see what they do with this extra infusion of cash. I think they, they ended up just selling less than 10% of the, the company in this IPO. So, uh, a lot of interesting things here. I think the, the ultimate question with Stitch Fix is, how, what will their customer acquisition costs look like, and how will that trend over time? Because I think part of what you're seeing here is that they they've really done a good job at capturing the low hanging fruit customers will be early adopters and you know uh, drift toward a service like this like this where you're matched up with a with a stylist they'll send you um, a box of you know five pieces of clothing you keep what you want you send back what you don't and get refunded for that but over the past year they tripled their marketing costs and revenue only grew 34% so as these customers get harder, or as it gets harder to bring new customers on board, and that marketing cost goes up, maybe the financial profile of the company doesn't look quite as appealing. So that will be, I, I'd say, the main thing to watch over the next year or two: just how how they manage to to bring in new customers and retain those customers, because they've done a pretty good job so far. But just the fact that marketing costs have gone up so much and revenue has started to decelerate, that's a bit of a yellow flag. It,
0: it absolutely is a yellow flag, but. It, it's interesting cuz this is one of those services that uh, in theory anyway should be able to learn more about you as you the longer you are a customer so presumably if they do a good job with new customers right out of the gate then the more items you buy the more they learn about your personal style the more they're able to tailor what they're sending to you so so if they've got their algorithms right then, uh, then this should get better over time.
1: Yeah, it's definitely a data-driven company, kind of like the Netflix of online personalized clothes shopping. I think that's one way to look at it—the Netflix of fashion, where not only do they learn more about you, but they're like, "Oh, people with similar tastes to you—they like this, so we'll recommend this um, to you this month with with your with your uh, box of clothes." So, certainly, as they. Uh, refine that algorithm. They get more data, and they get better at using that data to kind of fine tune what they send customers, what they offer customers. That should help. So ideally, you you get to a point where the marketing uh, expenses are growing at a similar rate of revenue, and not double or triple what revenue is, because obviously that that is unsustainable. But up to this point, you have to give the company a lot of credit in an age where it isn't difficult to to get funding funding uh, from. You know the, the private markets. If you are growing really quickly, they manage to raise relatively very little capital and fuel that growth on their own. So they, they deserve uh, a lot of credit for doing that.
0: One more time, the name of the founder CEO, Katrina Lake. All right, she sounds like someone to to watch. She's impressive. That, that's yeah. uh, that's really smart. Uh, before we get to the publishing wars, I want to say thanks again to Harry's for supporting today's episode of Market Foolery. I love Harry's products. I've been a customer of Harry's for years. And it's the holidays, and it's uh, let's face it, it's not easy to shop well for me, which is something I'm reminded of every year by my family. Um, but uh, I, I'm not alone. There are a lot of guys out there that it's not easy to shop for. And, and this same is, for me. Yeah. So th- that's where Harry's comes in. This holiday season, Harry's is offering custom and limited edition shaving sets that make really great gifts. Uh, foaming shave gel, five blade cartridges, and special limited edition winter chrome and emerald green handles that you can even personalize with engraving if you want. And as a special offer for our dozens of listeners, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off your order when you go to harrys.com. This offer is only available for the holidays, so this holiday, give Harry's and give Handsome. Get your holiday shopping done early and take advantage of free shipping. And let me just add parenthetically, you really want to take advantage of the free shipping. As I found out recently, because I went up to Boston, I got a Harry's shave set for my nephew, and I was—it was a short trip, quick turnaround, and so I'm I'm packing light. I just have a carry-on bag, and I stick the the Harry's box in my bag, and I'm like, "This is great. I'm going to give it to him in person." And I go through security, and security does the whole, "Whose bag is this?" That's my bag. They're like, "Come on over here." And so I got to spend some quality time with the. the folks at TSA. Oh, lovely. And uh, they're like, "What is?" It? And I, j- I instantly realized like, "Oh my god, I uh, I've made a terrible m- I should have packed it. Oh my. I should have just shipped it." And thanks to a very nice lady at TSA, she allowed me to take it on the plane. But nice. uh, but yeah, but don't do what I did. Lesson learned. Take advantage of the free shipping. Just do it. To get a limited edition holiday shave set while supplies last, go to harrys.com/fool right now. That's harrys.com. Fool. Google is back in the number 1 spot when it comes to referring traffic to web publishers. This is according to an article on Recode that was tracking Facebook had overtaken Google in terms of uh, basically referring traffic for web publishers, and they've, they've dropped while Google has gone back up pretty significantly. And I'm assuming, if you are a web publisher, you're paying very close attention to this kind of data. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting.
1: Off off the top of my head, I'm not immediately sure what would be causing the the rise in Google and the fall in Facebook, although, obviously, those are related because between the two of them, they dominate, what, it seems like 80% or so of the traffic that is referred to these uh, publishers. That's where a lot of the eyeballs are on Google and Facebook. But yeah, Google is now at close to 45% of uh, the traffic referred to publishers and Facebook has dropped uh, closer to 25%. I think part of this is you know both companies are always tweaking their algorithms. So in the case of Facebook, you know over the past year or two, they've had different tests where they they tweak the algorithm to prioritize you seeing posts from your family and friends rather than seeing a post from the Wall Street Journal or Huffington Post or some other publisher. Uh, and and I think you know, part of this could be. Um, uh, a tweak in the algorithm, maybe perhaps since the election, where obviously Facebook, especially, has seen a lot of controversy around the fake news arguments and uh, Russians, you know, buying ads around around the election, uh, political ads and things like that. So perhaps they they tweaked their algorithm a bit, especially in light of the the blowback they were getting and kind of their poor management of that whole situation. And I, I think that perhaps could be a reason that um, they're seeing a little bit less. Um, Traffic being sent to uh, to publishers, and I personally though I, I just I don't go to Facebook to to read the news, uh, you know. But if, if there's you know a scandal or some controversy going on, I'll probably Google it or go to Twitter. But Facebook is not where I, I go to get you know insightful news content. Obviously, both both companies have have different tests in this department, and it's important to take a step back too and realize not. But both companies are still doing very well, uh, and I think uh, Facebook will often get a lot of credit as kind of the cool kid on the block, and we can forget about Google or Alphabet. But Alphabet continues to put up really impressive growth given their size, and Facebook also continues to to put up really nice numbers. So. I wouldn't look at something like this as anything other than an interesting story, but I wouldn't look at it as you know something to change an in investing thesis.
0: Well, and it's it's a nice reminder that for as huge as Alphabet and Facebook are, within those two companies, there are very nimble operations going on. And we talked uh, on Motley Fool Money the other day about YouTube taking one more crack at. Music streaming, and I—I I don't know if it was Ron Gross or Jeff Fisher, someone made the point that, um, you know, it's it's nice to see that Alphabet isn't great at everything. That you know that yeah. that their first two attempts at a music sharing service really didn't work at all. Hence, they're making a third run at it. And, uh, and I, I, that's always comforting to me for, for any large company to see. Not that I'm rooting necessarily for them to, to struggle and fail, but it's just nice to see okay, just like in human beings, no one wants to see a human being who's great at everything. So, so it's just so, it, but, it, but it is impressive because we have seen the reverse of that, where particularly tech companies can get to be so large that they become bureaucratic and it becomes very difficult for them to act quickly. Yeah.
1: and Facebook especially, they, they've gotten a lot of attention for their culture of really move fast, break things, test things, and just go quickly with all of it. And I think they're less in the breaking things <laughs> phase of it, but they, they are still very much a testing-oriented culture where really any of their engineers can pull you a know, hundred users or several thousand users and test whatever it might be a slightly different algorithm a different color a new feature and an engineer at Facebook can really do that within 15 or 20 minutes so it's not some bureaucratic process where you have to go through all these different levels of management if you're an engineer with an idea obviously within reason you can push that idea out and see how it performs with that very 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 small subset of users and if if the test works, then I think it's it's rolled out. And Google, they they, they try to do different things like that. Like they have the uh, I forget what what they call it, but the twenty percent rule, where uh, if you're an engineer at Google or I think really an employee at Google, you can take twenty percent of your time and just devote it on something not related to your day job. So if there's a test that you want to try out, and I think that's how Gmail was created and some other. Uh, How'd
0: that work out? Yeah,
1: that, that one worked out pretty well. I think they like some <laughs> some hits like that. So, um, yeah, both of these companies, as, as they become really you know half a trillion dollar um, uh, size and market cap, they they need to continue to find ways to stay nimble and fight that kind of urge to become more complacent, and bureaucratic. And so far, I think both companies have done a nice job, and they
0: continue to put up really impressive growth numbers. Our man Dan Boyd uh, is not behind the glass. Austin Morgan pulling double duty this week uh, or certainly today and tomorrow uh, he produces industry focus and he's helping us out today on Market Foolery. and also on the other side of the glass I want to give a shout out to a longtime listener Brian Wen who's visiting us so thanks Brian for, for coming to hang out uh, it is uh, tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. so happy Hanukkah to, uh, to all those who celebrate and we do holiday music on Market Foolery. All month long, and uh, I've been asked uh, on Twitter and an email, like, "Hey, can you can you can you tell us the name of the of the group? Can you tell us the name of the song?" And uh, no, I can't always do that because a lot of times we figure that out after we're done taping the show, but. But uh, but this time, I can tell you, to help us kick off the first night of Hanukkah, um, we've got an cappella group called 613 helping us out. So David Kretzmann from Supernova, thanks for being here! Thanks, Chris! As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Austin Morgan. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening! We'll see you tomorrow!
1: I'm feeling pretty
0: great! Ba, 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 I love ba, this
1: me was the wee